0: There is a heaviness in the air this morning, no doubt, as we try to make sense of the events that have happened within the last 48 hours or more. And so as we continue our series today, Getting the Gospel, we are still so rudely reminded that the world is still not right, broken, in fact, decaying, really, somewhere in the ballpark of 129 killed, 350 plus or minus injured. The world we live in is indeed broken, hurting, decaying. And it's times like this that we take a step back and we think about what is important and maybe even hug our loved ones extra close as we think about all the possibilities, all the what-ifs, and maybe at times like this, fear, or worse, hatred kicks in. And it is also times like this that the gospel can help us make sense of all of the hurt and pain and anguish and brokenness that surrounds us. Certainly the gospel has something to say about all of this. And so as we continue our series Getting the Gospel where we celebrate the good news of the Christian faith we remember the good news that because of the life, the death, the resurrection and the ascension of Jesus you and I, all who are in Christ are included into this great family of God. We are given a place and a people to belong to. We receive healing and grace and forgiveness and freedom. Lives are transformed as you and I are propelled by the spirit of the living God to live a life of freedom and sanctification guided by the living word of God. And I don't know about you, but that. My friends, is something to celebrate. That, my friends, is good news when we begin to think about the magnitude of what Jesus has done for us. And as we watched just moments ago of that compelling video of Jesus being the God of the broken... He isn't the God of the perfect or the all-star doers, but he is the God of the broken who reaches down into the depths of society, to the broken spaces, into the dark corners of the world and begins to heal and reconcile and sets us free into a life of transformation. And so then let's take a few moments and recap where we have been over the last few weeks in this wonderful, important series, Getting the Gospel. Week one, Eric Canfield took us through what it means to say yes to Jesus. That in getting the gospel, we get right with God. And all who are in Christ are justified, are forgiven, and set Free because of the life, the death, and the resurrection of Jesus Christ. When we confess our sins, he is faithful and just and will forgive all of us of our unrighteousness. And when we confess and believe that Jesus Christ is Lord and is indeed died for our sins and has been resurrected from the grave, you and I are justified before God. And during week two, we talked about what it means to get over ourselves. To overcome our character flaws, that when we live a life in the Holy Spirit, things like love, joy, peace, patience, kindness, goodness, gentleness, and self control begin to pour out of our lives. And things like pride and selfishness and darkness begin to take the back seat of our lives because of the transforming power of the Holy Spirit. Spirit, And because of the Holy Spirit, he reorients our lives and begins to make us more like Christ. And finally, Dan reminded us last week of the importance of setting our course by the reliable truth, by leaning into the living word of God and allowing that to be our foundation. And today, then, we will talk about what it means to participate And the renewing of this world. And so is this not all great news? Something to be celebrated. That although you and I are broken, every single one of us are broken. But in Christ, we are made right. In Christ, we find healing. In Christ, we find restoration, freedom, inclusion, and grace. Good news, yes. But friends, we are still faced with the horrifying reality that we live in a broken and hurting world. In fact, we don't even need to look to Paris to inform us of this reality. To add to the list of current acts of violence, we add the following to the list. Kenya. Lebanon. Syria. And even right here in our own neighborhood, Chicago. In the last 10 months alone, 396 have been killed in acts of violence in 2,061 incidents turn on the news for just a few moments and we hear about the latest explosion or the latest act of violence or terror attack, or the latest bomb going off in a funeral in Baghdad or the horrific refugee crisis where people are walking across countries for months with nothing but their own clothes on their back. With no place to go and no place to lie their head. Situations surround us that seem utterly hopeless. To some, it may seem like the world is falling apart in all four corners of the world. Bad news. And while we're on the topic of bad news, if I may digress for just a moment, scholars have been writing prolifically on this phenomenon called the post-Christian culture or the collapse of Christian culture, where they note a radical decline in church attendance, a radical drop in even vocational ministry, and seminaries are feeling the pain of this. There's even, to some, a noticeable shift in values within culture. And many of you sitting here this morning might be wanting to nod your head in agreement of the noticeable shift in values within culture. And even, some say, scholars are noting that even those who attend church, who attend a gathering regularly, are often shaped more by the values of the prevailing culture rather than the spirit of the living God or the values within the Christian culture. We remember a time, and this time was not something I remember, but I would imagine many of you remember a time when prayers were said in schools and and Christian ethics to an extent was in sync with the prevailing culture where attending church on Sunday morning might have been the respectable thing to do. Not so any longer, says many scholars who are studying the trends in America. And although, yes, America does continue to remain the home of Christians, of more Christians in this nation than any other, some say, where roughly seven in ten say that they attend a local congregation or a Sunday morning Christian gathering on somewhat of a regular basis. But the bad news is the percentage of adults who describe themselves as Christians has dropped By eight percentage points in just seven years. And those who say they have no affiliation or are even atheists has risen in six percentage points within that same amount of time. And while I don't want to continue to bore you with statistics, I will tell you that many scholars agree that we live in a new normal. We live in a world where the Christian culture or the church is in decline. Bad news, huh? And we lament. We lament over all of this, we lament for Paris. We lament for the violence. We lament for Chicago. We lament for the decline. We lament for all of the pain and brokenness that surrounds us in this world. And some are throwing in the towel. What's the point, they say? The situation is hopeless and grim. Why bother? Why do anything? The world is falling apart in all four corners. What could I possibly do? Where is the hope, they wonder? Where is the light in the darkness, they ask? Well, the Apostle Paul has a thing or two to say about all of the suffering and brokenness in this world. In Romans chapter 8, beginning at verse 18. He speaks into the world of suffering where he says this, I consider that our present sufferings are not worth comparing with the glory that has been revealed in us. For the creation waits an eager expectation for the children of God to be revealed. For the creation was subjected to frustration, not by its own choice, but by the will of the one who subjected it in hope that the creation itself will be liberated from its bondage to decay and brought into the freedom and glory of the children of God. We know that the whole creation has been groaning as in the pains of childbirth right up to this present time. Not only so, but we ourselves who have the first fruit of the Spirit grown inwardly as we wait eagerly for our adoption to sunset, sonship, the redemption of our bodies, for in this hope we are saved. The hope that is seen is no hope at all. Who hopes for what they already have? But if we hope for what we do not have, we wait for it patiently. Paul acknowledges that the world is suffering He acknowledges that the world, in fact, is groaning with the pains of childbirth, waiting for the redemption and the renewal of this world. And he says that this suffering, and boy, does this speak into our context today. This suffering, he says, this pains of childbirth, this longing for renewal, where we are crying out, where, O Lord, are you? Or how long, O Lord? Paul says that is nothing compared to the promise that we have before us. In fact, it is precisely times like this where we feel the crushing pain of darkness and hurt and violence in our world that we allow the end to impinge on the present. Let me say that again. It is precisely times like this when we feel the crushing pain of violence in our world and when we are feeling the pangs of the world and childbirth, as Paul paints this picture. It is times like this that we allow the end and the future restoration of the world to impinge on the present. In fact, what is this end goal that Scripture describes? John in his vision, paints a glorious picture of what this end goal is in Revelation 21. He says this, Then I saw a new heaven and a new earth. For the first heaven and the first earth had passed away, and there was no longer any sea. every tear from their eyes. There will be no more death, no more mourning, no more crying or pain, for the old order of things has passed away. I don't know about you, but I long for this day. This is good news, where someday you and I, friends, will live in a world where there is no more suffering, no more violence, no more acts of terrorism, no more pain, no more evil. It will be a place with no more tears in void of darkness. It will be void of violence and racism and murder and brokenness. This is why the Apostle Paul says, This current suffering that you and I are feeling will be just like a blip in the radar compared to the future hope that you and I have. And although we live in a world that is held captive by pain and brokenness and decay, pain and brokenness and decay will not get the last word So what do we do in the meantime as we live into this, what Scholar calls the already-but-not-yet space, where we celebrate that you and I have already been included into the family of God because of the life, the death, the resurrection, the ascension of Jesus, and the giving of the Holy Spirit, and then we look ahead to the not-yet space, where there will be a place with no more crying and no more pain, and so now you and I are feeling the tension What do we do in the meantime? Do we simply sit back, put our feet up, throw in the towel, and say, Well, the world has clearly gone awry. The church is clearly in decline, but that doesn't impact me here in Oak Brook, so who cares? Of course not. As Christians who are being redeemed and restored, we allow the end, the future hope, to impinge on our present world. You see, the exciting news of the gospel is that you and I are called right now, right here, right now, to participate in the redemption of the world by the empowering presence of the Holy Spirit You and I are called to participate together in the redemption of the world. I would like to close then with four distinctive characteristics of a redemptive community. In other words, of a local church or of a community that says, we are not okay with the world as it is and we look to the future and we're not going to wait for that. But instead, we are, through the power of the Holy Spirit, are going to begin to participate in creating a world of no more violence, of no more pain, of no more injustice, of no more oppression. But instead, we are going to, through the power of the Holy Spirit, create a community where there is love, joy, peace, patience, kindness, goodness, and forgiveness represented in the community and seeping out into the world. And so number one, A redemptive community is better together, better together. One of the distinctive characteristics of being a Christian and the good news of the gospel is that you and I have been given a family. All too often, especially in Western culture today, we often view this Christian life as just a vertical relationship. It is just me and God. But the good news is that we have been given a family. In fact, this is exactly what Jesus prayed in the garden. In John chapter 7, we read about that. He says this. He says, my prayer, he's praying for his disciples and us. My prayer is not for them alone. I pray also for those who will believe in me through their message that all of them may be one, Father, just as you Are in me and I am in you. May they also be in us so that the world may believe that you have sent me. Jesus prayed that you and I would be bonded as one. So that when the world peers into the local body of Christ, they see unity that is represented in the Trinity. They see oneness. they see reconciliation, they see togetherness, so that when the world looks at us, they see God. And not only was this the prayer of Jesus, but this was one of the defining characteristics of the early church in Acts chapter 2. They devoted themselves to the apostles' teaching and to the fellowship, to the breaking of bread and prayer, and everyone was filled with awe at the many wonders and signs performed by the apostles. All of the believers were together and had everything in common. The strength of a redemptive community is in how you and I do life together. It is precisely in how we do life together, in how we treat one another, and how we break bread together, in how we worship together, in how we practice hospitality and generosity to one another. It is precisely in how we together do life that we reflect the image of the triune God. Secondly, a redemptive community is generous beyond measure. Again, we see this as another defining characteristic of the early church. They sold property and possessions to give to anyone in need. We read about in Acts chapter 2, verses 45 through 47. Every day they continued to meet together in their temple courts. They broke bread in their homes and they ate together with glad and sincere hearts, praising God and enjoying the favor of all people. And the Lord added to their number daily those who were being saved. A redemptive community that is generous beyond measure says, You need a place to live or you need land, God's people will provide. You need a home, God's people will provide a place for you to lay your weary head at night. You need food, God's people will provide. You can't pay your bill this month and you can't seem to make ends meet. God's people will rally together and will figure out a way to help you along in this difficult journey. You need a family, God's people will be your family. You don't have winter clothes. God's people will rally together with a drive to collect all the mittens and scarves and hats and jackets for you. You're a widow or widower and lonely and broken. God's people will surround you. They will love you. They will care for you. And they will check in on you. Your car broke down and you had a terrible month financially and you have no idea how you're going to get it to work. God's people will rally around you and help you that figure that out. You have a child with autism and you're wondering if the church has a place for him. God's play, people will for, figure that out and will create a space for him or her to come and thrive and grow. There are children imprisoned and parents of parents who cannot give their children Christmas gifts. God's people will shop with care and intentionality and provide Christmas gifts for that family whose parents cannot provide them Christmas gifts. You have a teenager who's been bullied, who's having a tough time at school. God's people will provide a safe place for that teenager to come and experience what it's like to live in a community of Reconciliation, love, and grace. And we could go on and on and on. A redemptive community is generous beyond measure. Third, a redemptive community seeks justice, seeks justice. You see, a redemptive community looks to the promises found in Revelation 21. To the promises found in Romans chapter 8. To the promises in the community that Jesus illustrates in the Sermon on the Mount. And we say we are citizens of that kingdom. We aren't citizens of this world, but we are citizens of that kingdom. Therefore, we choose as a community to live into that new world. We choose as a community to live into the place where there's no more brokenness, no more injustice, no more oppression, and no more pain. And we are going to, through the power of the Holy Spirit, create that here on earth. Where we read about in Revelation 21 that there will be a place of no more pain, therefore we would take a stand to create spaces without pain. We read that it's a place that there will be no more violence. Therefore, we will take a stand against violence here on earth. We read that it will be a place of unity and no racism and divisions. Therefore, we will take a stand against racism and divisions here on earth. We read that it will be a place of no more tears. Therefore, we will work hard to care for the orphan, the widow, and the widower, the hurting, and the broken. We read that it will be a place full of justice. Therefore, we take a stand here on earth to create a culture and a community of justice. A redemptive community seeks justice. Finally, a redemptive community is missional. In John's gospel, Jesus said to his disciples, he said, peace with you. As the Father has sent me, I have sent you. You and I have been sent. We are on a mission. We don't throw in the towel and we don't say that the world is falling apart on all four corners. But instead, we believe that Jesus has sent us to be on mission. To participate in the redemption of this world. Following Jesus, therefore, means boldly and humbly entering into our culture as ordinary Christians, displaying the love of God by serving our neighbor, loving our neighbor, listening to our neighbor, being present with our neighbor. As Christians, we are called, we are sent, we are on mission. And, friends, we are sent on mission. We are called because God believes in us. We are sent, we are called because God believes in us. God believes in you because he has given us himself. He doesn't simply say, go and have fun, tell me how it went. But instead he says, go, I believe in you. Because I've given you myself and the Holy Spirit and I will walk with you and we will be on mission together as we together participate in the redemption of this world. You and I are sent on mission by the missional God because he believes in us, the missional church. Allow me to close with an illustration. Before there was Michael Phelps, there was a swimmer by the name of Tom Jaeger. He was known as the bullet in his day. And when I was 16 years old, I was sent to a two-week swim camp in New Mexico. I was surrounded by the most elite of swimmers. So surely, swim practice after swim practice, I was the last one to hit the wall. And about towards the end of the camp, Tom Jaeger decided to take us onto a hike in one of the mountains in New Mexico. And because of the altitude and the intensity, I was having great difficulty with my breathing. And every time we rounded a corner, I would have to stop and sit on a rock, hyperventilating. And every time I had to sit on a rock, the voice of, you can't do this, just got louder. It seemed like the end was never close. It seemed like the end was never near. So finally, last in line of all 100 swimmers, I threw in the towel and I sat on a rock and I said, I will just wait for them to come back down. I don't care about making it to the end. And as I sat there, 16 years old, I began to weep. And then I heard a rustling in the leaves and someone making their way down from the mountain. And I could see six foot six Olympic swimmer Tom Jaeger making his way down the mountain towards me. I began to panic wondering if I was in trouble or what was going to happen. I continued to weep even more. And as six foot six Tom Jaeger made his way down the mountain, he got down on his knees in front of me and looked at me eye to eye as if to say, I see you. And as he looked at me in the eyes, he held out his hand and he said, come on, Terabeth. The end is just around the corner. I believe in you. And we're going to do this together. Friends, participating in the redemption of the world might seem daunting. It might seem like the good news and the hope of the world is never going to come, especially when we look at current events. But we don't have to throw in the towel. Jesus doesn't stand on top of a mountain and say, have at it. But instead, he left the place of his throne and he came to earth and became God with us. And he sees us and he looks at us and he holds out his hand and he says, come on, church, we have a mission. And I'm with you. The end is close. I believe in you. So may we as the church who is in Christ and lives in the empowering presence of the Holy Spirit, participate in the redemption of the world by displaying the love of God together with reckless generosity, taking a stand for justice and living life on mission. Would you please join me in prayer? Spirit of the living God, as we continue to make sense of the destruction and pain in the world, I pray that you would embolden us to live life on mission and to create that community that is already but not yet, a world of redemption and restoration by the power of your Holy Spirit. It is in your most powerful name that we pray. Amen.